0: This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. Today.
1: Today. Today.
0: Today with Jeff Finds.
1: We are taking the gospel to the world,
0: pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher.
1: One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them.
0: Today. Today, today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron, and welcome back to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining me for the final part of Pastor Jeff's series titled Don't Panic, where we're taking an in-depth look at the book of Revelation. We've covered the Beast of the Sea, End Times, and John's point of view and context at the time of writing this book. If you wanna catch up on this series, listen to the part one of this episode that we're gonna finish today, you can search for Today with Jeff Fines" wherever you get your podcasts. Let's jump back into this message with Pastor Jeff. He's in Revelation 21 and talking about our human discontent with life on earth.
1: The world stakes everything on the essential goodness of human nature. We don't need God to make a society. Lady Pastoral says, you're dead wrong. Knowledge and science cannot curb these impulses. And folks, if you read the philosophers and those of us who have, you know, when you go to seminary now, you're not only reading the Bible, I know this may be a shocker to you, but you're reading the history of thought. And what you'll notice is all these philosophers who started out with great hope and confidence in humanity to create this working utopia, where there would be peace and vitality for everyone. And I'm talking about guys like H.G. Wells, Nietzsche, and Marx to some degree. They all ended up in gibbering insanity and ultimate nihilism because they realized it won't work. The immeasurable disappointment cannot be reckoned with when you think that man is the hope of the world and all of a sudden you realize, where do you go from there? Can I just say one thing about what's going on right now? Having lived my life for many years on that side of the world in Africa and then in the South Pacific for another major part of my life, I can tell you that in America, we don't realize how influenced we are by Judeo Christian values. And when you run a political party that bases itself on the goodness of man, and you think that by being nice to leaders on that side of the world, they'll be nice to you. They see that as weakness. You're coming at Judeo Christian values, turn the other cheek, pray for your enemies. And those are all good things to do individually. But many nations see kindness like that as a weakness to be exploited for power and position. Christians are incredibly pessimistic. All right, now, can we go to the good side? With equal force, and this is the message of Revelation, this is the message God's got this, Christians should be the most optimistic and, in fact, are the most optimistic people in the world humanity is more anxious and depressed and discouraged than we've ever been before. All the polls show this. This is a teenable argument. I mean, this is science. They tell us that people are more discouraged and discontented than they've ever been, and you know why? It turns out we're really not that stupid. That our optimism, we know, is based on things that can change at any moment. So we don't get too excited and then we never settle in. It's the same reason that on a golf trip recently, on the first day of golf, I had five birdies and shot a 71. Did I get excited? No, because I knew it was only a matter of moments before it all turns to custard. And any golfer knows exactly what I'm talking about. But now we're getting somewhere. Listen now, this would excite you. The best alternative systems of thought including all religions, the best they can give you is to tell you that together, perhaps we can make this world a better place until we all die. Socialism, capitalism, new age, all of it. That's the theory. We're all going to die. You're dead a long time. So let's at least try to make this place great while we're here, but nobody's ever succeeded. On the other hand, the religions of the world, Hinduism, Buddhism, even Islam to a degree, give you this optimism that says if you do all the right things, then maybe you can get a disembodied spirit in some kind of paradise after you die. You with me? A disembodied spirit. You're going to fly like an eagle to the sea. I don't even know what that means. Good song though. Jesus has the audacity to tell you and me about a hope and a claim that is beyond all optimism. And then validated it by doing something as proof that it's coming. He rose from the dead. This is so astonishing. If you're a skeptic here and you're, oh, well, okay, now you've jumped on. I'll hedge you up to the but You know, you got no history. I'll get to that in a second. But just for now, most religions will tell you that the best they can offer you is either one, earthly happiness. This is the path. But the path never works. Rich people still commit suicide. Wealthy people still go insane. Dictators still invade. Politicians still lie and deceive no matter what system. People achieve their goals. They still live with this inner sense of defeat and depression and the stories pile up year after year. So they tell us on the one hand, we can give you earthly happiness, make it better, but they don't. Or two, we can give you spiritual happiness. We can make you content for now until you fly away. A disembodied spirit floating around from place to place. Jesus comes along. Do you realize what he's saying in Revelation 21? This would have been mind-boggling. It would have been new information. It would have been astonishing to John's readers. You and I are not so astonished by it anymore because we've heard it so often. Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm going to give you a new body and a new spirit on an entirely new planet, new world, new universe, I'm gonna make a new heaven and a new earth. You were never meant to be a disembodied spirit. That was never the idea. You're gonna have a new type of flesh, more glorious than you could ever imagine. In other words, you're gonna eat great food forever. You're gonna eat great food forever you remember what happened to Jesus when he appeared to the disciples after the resurrection? He ate fish and bread. He had dinner with the disciples in his glorified body. And I used to wonder, why did he do that? And the Bible tells us because he's the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? If you want a little bit of a clue what you're going to be like in heaven, look at the one who was the firstborn from the dead. He ate. He communes with his friends. He transports from place to place. He walks through walls. He ascends into the clouds. I don't know what all that means because I'm not that smart. But it's cool. When I used to go over to Honolulu, uh, when I lived in New Zealand to attend a church conference, every time I would stay in a place called Kailua because I had friends there and I got a free room. And as I'm driving back to the airport, you have to go over the H3. The H3 is a remarkable highway. And every time I'd drive over the H3 and see those beautiful mountains, I'd just start weeping because I didn't want to go back to New Zealand because it was usually winter. And I used to, a couple of times I actually pulled over at site where you could just pull over and they would have these places where you could just look out over this vast mountain. The mountains tend to, it's almost like they would just rise out of the sea or the earth. Beautiful. You know what? It's astonishing as that is one blade of grass in the new earth will be more glorious, more wondrous, more beautiful than all the mountains you've ever seen. And you will have millions of years to contemplate. These irresistible beauties of a new world. And folks, these new bodies, they won't just have five senses, they can have thousands of senses. There are dimensions of reality that we have no idea about. You'll run and not get weary, you'll walk and not get faint, you'll talk back to your wife, not be scared. All of those things. <laughs> the new heavens, the new Earth. Will give us an optimism like we've never seen before, but you've heard it so often, you've grown immune to it. It's, it's familiarity breeds contempt. You've forgotten what you have to look forward to. And it's all based on reality. Now, wait a minute. How so? Because I want to believe this, Pastor. I do, but how so? In Revelation 1, 5, John writes, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. In other words, Jesus if he rose from the dead, if that's empirically verifiable, if he rose from the dead, he's the firstborn and you're going to follow. And he says, look, he says he's the ruler over the kings of the earth. He's the ruler over Putin. He's the ruler over all leaders. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, he has the final say on everything. Everything. In Ephesians 1, we're told, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. There's that seal again. Remember the phylacteries? What you think and what you do, we're marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. We think and do the acts of God, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. What he's saying there is the fact, and you know it in your heart, and it's hard to explain to somebody on the outside looking in, but if you've been a Christ follower for any length of time, you know that you're different now than you were 30 years ago. You see things you never saw, you feel things you've never felt, and you're able to do things you never thought you could do. The Bible tells you that's proof of your salvation, but it's also the deposit that is going to guarantee something. That right now, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In the kingdom that is to come, the spirit is willing, the flesh is able. And not only a new body, a new spirit, but we get a new earth. And remember, it's not new in the, in the say, in a case of totally other. It's the Greek word kinos. You've got kinos and neos. You watch, uh, what is it? What's the series with neo? The matrix. Everybody borrows from the Bible. So kynos is renewed, refurbished. So the Bible tells us in Romans 8, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. I love that. So he personifies creation. He gives it personhood. So creation's waiting like we are. And we can't wait. Creation can't wait either. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. And hope for what? That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. What does that mean? Well, it means that creation really wants to cooperate with us. And yet, as beautiful as it is, it can kill us, right? But in the new world, it fully cooperates with us in our new body, in our new spirit, in this new heavens and new earth, this new atmosphere, this new land mass, whatever it is. However it is, but we're not just floating around. We're not seeing playing harps on a cloud. It's still us. I'll know you, you'll know me, First Corinthians 15. We'll still be distinct from one another. And the, the, the new heavens and the new Earth will cooperate with us, so will we be able to soar like eagles? I don't know. It sounds good to me. Swim like whales, experience a kind of freedom that we've never known. Yes, but it's beyond what the mind can fathom, because we're so limited. we only have a deposit. But all this is not merely possible. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. Now, this is the end. Shortest sermon, because I've been going a long time. But let me finish well. When I was in New Zealand, I spent some time with two people. I'm not gonna use their real names, because I found out, man, this goes out everywhere now. I don't wanna get a phone call. We're gonna call them Hamish and Fiona. Those are two very popular Kiwi names. You know, it's like John Smith. Hamish and Fiona, they were involved in higher education in New Zealand. They were huge fans of Harvard University. And I thought we were making progress. I was talking to them about Jesus, the historicity of the scripture, the person of Christ, the historical Jesus. And finally, after I'd brought these, what I thought were pretty good exhibits, Fiona looked at me and said, Jeff, I'm just gonna tell you. I mean, we haven't told you, but here's the problem. The problem is that only uneducated people believe in Jesus. And I looked at her and I said, this is when I was younger and I wasn't as nice. And I said, are you, are you kidding me? I said, if I was as ignorant about what you believe as you are about what I believe, you'd never listen. She goes, what do you mean? I said, Blaise Simpson, or, or, or sorry, Blaise Pascal, the father of the computer, James Simpson. Then I realized, wait a minute, I've used those before. I need a new example. And then it dawned on me. You ever heard the name Dr. Simon Greenleaf? He's the founder of Harvard University School of Law. Do you know that Greenleaf wrote a book? And they said, yeah, it's called The Treatise on the Law of Evidence, which continues to this day to be esteemed by many legal scholars as the greatest volume ever written on the use of empirical evidence to prove or disprove historical truth claims. Greenleaf... For most of his life was an antagonist toward Christianity. He would mock the resurrection myth to his students in class. And then one day one of his students challenged him, he said, why don't you prove your assertion by use of your formidable analytical skills? Prove to us there's no resurrection. He accepted the task. And then you know what happened? He did his research and became a Christ follower, gave his life to Jesus. In fact, he wrote, he concluded that any honest cross-examination of the evidence for the resurrection of Christ would result in an undoubting conviction of their integrity, ability, and truth. Now, I can't go through that whole thing. We do that about one out of every 10 Easters. But the point is, if you really are interested in this, if you want objective evidence, it's there. But you've got to go and read, and you've got to study, and you've got to discover all that happened around the resurrection and in those first 300 years of church history. Thomas Hardy, and if you took any English lit classes at all, you would have found his poem, and and Thomas Hardy, by the way, is kind of like the Eeyore of poets, just really pessimistic. But he wrote a poem. Do you remember the Darkling Thrush? Okay. This is the last day of 1899. He writes this poetry, famous and infamous. So it's on a day where everything is cold and dark, and he said, so is my heart, and suddenly... He hears a bird singing, and he writes The Darkling Thrush" by Thomas Hardy. Here are two paragraphs. The ancient pulse of German birth was shrunken hard and dry, and every spirit upon the earth seemed fervorless as I. At once a voice arose among the bleak twigs overhead in a full-hearted, even song of joy illimited. An aged thrust, frail, gaunt, and small, In blast-beruffled plume had chosen thus to fling his soul upon the growing gloom. So little calls for carolings of such ecstatic sound was written on terrestrial things afar or nigh around that I could think there trembled through his happy goodnight air some blessed hope whereof he knew and I was unaware. No hope. And then a little bird comes along and sings. And flings his soul upon the growing gloom, some blessed hope, whereof he knew, and I was unaware. In your heart and in your soul, no matter what age you are in this room, you know deep down this is true. Something resonates in you that there is a discontent, that there's something that nothing on this earth can satisfy. And you keep trying to find it. You know down deep in your heart, and I've said this numerous times, that you've lost your home and your whole life is about trying to get back there. There's a sense of belonging that you don't have that you want so desperately. There's a type of love that no matter how much you love your wife and your wife loves you, there's just still something missing and you know it. And I wonder if Thomas Hardy read Titus, where Titus said in Titus 2.13, while we wait for the blessed hope, The appearing of the glory of our God, great God, and Savior. Folks, two powerful words. Woo-hoo. Right? (laughs) Woo-hoo. Go ahead, let your voice be heard concerning righteousness in a way that brings peace. Christians should be involved in politics, absolutely. But never think for a moment that your hope is in any authority or government. Push back evil by the way you live your life every day and realize the flow is strong and therefore calls for patient endurance and faithfulness. But never, ever forget John's message to us that rulers will come and go and are held under the sway of the evil one. But there's a kingdom, a completely new world, a completely new universe with a new body and a new soul. And everything's going to be wiped clean. Art, work, literature, poetry, music, oceans, mountains, bodies, loves, hugs kisses food family friends all will be better than what we ever thought they could be except for van morrison his music will still be there (laughs) most of you have no idea who that is our optimism is off the charts as christ followers because we've already received the deposit and we know the guarantee is coming okay i got it jeff thanks for that do you really because unless you have this radical pessimism about the nature of this world, the nature of man, you're never going to feel safe and you're never going to be safe and you're going to go up and down on a roller coaster of emotions. And you will fall for anybody who comes along. They will dupe you when they proclaim that they are messiahs and you'll be tattered by temporary kingdoms. On the same, in, in the same vein, unless you have this awesome optimism that there's no hope in us but plenty of hope for us, that God one day will interject into this universe and like a Genesis torpedo, everything's going to be made new. Without that optimism, you're never going to be safe. I've got so much more to say, but can I, just, can I just say this? When you learn this, you will realize never again you are a victim of chance. When you understand how, this, how everything is moving toward the new heaven and new earth, that his story, history, is God's story. Look, do you, think, do you think God saw Putin coming? Do you think he could have stopped Putin? Why didn't he? That's way above our pay grade, isn't it? We, have, we do not have that kind of wisdom. But we do know in the past, every time we thought something was going wrong, it's amazing how it all comes together for God's good. I'm amazed when I read the story of the Apostle Paul, man, the Apostle Paul spoke and wrote and lived for justice, and yet he's in prison, and what does he say? This is my great opportunity to preach the gospel to the Roman guards. Then his impending death is just days away in Rome, and he says, well, I'm going to die, but it's my gain. Absent from the body present with the Lord. He writes the church in Rome that's under heavy persecution and tells them, don't worry, everything's going to work out for our good and for God's glory. Paul insisted on the reality that God was doing good things, no matter how things appeared on the surface, that your captivity today is God's deliverance and restoration tomorrow. Hope sees heaven through the thickest clouds. And the future is our friend, no matter what happens. And every event of your life is to keep you on the road to eternity. Our lifelong longing, someone wrote, to be united with something in the universe from which we feel cut off. Our lifelong longing to look upon the glory of nature and want to be on the inside of the door that all our lives we've seen from the outside. Our lifelong longing is no fantasy or adolescent dream, but the real and true index of your real situation and what you were made for. It's what's coming and you will never be safe without it. Okay, enough false closes. This is the real close. So much more. Henry Rimmer wrote a letter to Charles Fuller. You know who Charles Fuller is, right? Fuller Seminary. Two great, fantastic evangelists in their day. Henry Rimmer writes a letter to Charles Fuller because Charles Fuller is going to preach this, that coming Sunday night on the topic of heaven. At that point, Rimmer was an old man. He's about to die. He hears that Fuller's going to preach on heaven and he writes this, and I want to end with this. He said, Mr. Fuller, I would like so much to be in church on Sunday night to hear your sermon on the subject of heaven, but my physical impairment will not allow me to be there. The reason I would like to be there is because I have a great interest in that place. I own a piece of land with clear deed and title in that wonderful place that you're gonna be talking about. I didn't buy it. It was given to me without price and without money, although the one who gave it to me purchased it with a great cost. I don't have it as an idle investment, I've been busy sending materials to the master architect for more than 50 years, and he is building for me a house of my dreams. It will never have to be painted or remodeled because it's being made just for me. Termites will never eat away at its foundation because it is built on the rock of ages. Fire will never destroy it. Winds will never blow it away. There will be no locks on its doors because no evil people will ever live in that blessed land. Between me and my home, there is a valley, a dark valley, and I know I must cross it, but I'm not afraid because one has gone before me and he will lead the way. I am ready to take his hand. My house is almost finished. I would like to hear your sermon on heaven because I have a great interest in that land. Henry Rimmer's body is buried over in Inglewood Park Cemetery, but he never really went into the ground, did he? He's been with Jesus since the day he took the hand of Jesus and crossed that dark valley, a dark valley that led to the place prepared for him before the foundations of the world. You should be the most happy, optimistic people on the planet. Look, go out and live. Live your life. Work. Have families. Plant gardens. Enjoy God's creation. Go on out there. Fight against injustice. But no, this world's not your home. Don't look so surprised when things go south. Pray for it. Care for people. Alleviate the pain and suffering of those who are suffering. Do what Christ calls us to do. Love those who are enemies. Love those and help those who are less fortunate. But you are citizens of another kingdom and we eagerly await a savior from there. Father, thank you for your love for us, for a powerful text in Revelation 21. We look forward to the day when there's new heavens and a new earth. The old order has passed away, that you are our God. We shall be your people. There'll be no more crying or suffering or pain. You are making all things new. And even though our minds can't possibly fathom what that's like, we got a little deposit. We've seen a little bit. We've got a glimpse. Help us to live faithfully and endure for the cause of Christ. As we eagerly await our Savior in Christ's name. Everybody said them. Amen.
0: You've been listening to Today with Jeff Finds next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this, just search for Today with Jeff Finds wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, you make me